This is Black Table Talk, Daring Dialogues. If you've been following along with us for any length of time, you know that we have spent probably, I would say, the last year, year and a half, reading Dr. Stewart's book, Black Women, Black Love. So she's going to be with us live on next Tuesday to have a talk about that book. It's going to be a very powerful conversation, so I invite you to come back at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time um, on next Tuesday to listen to what Dr. Stewart has to share about her book and her writing. So I wanted to make sure that I made that announcement. You'll start to see some uh, advertisement for that go out beginning today, hopefully, into next week. The other thing I want to say is welcome and thank you to those of you who have chosen to follow this page. This is a grassroots page. It is sponsored literally by you, the people. So the conversations that we have, the books that we're sharing and uh, putting out, the uh, content that we're putting out is done in-house through God Ideas. Um, so you all are literally helping this page to be a presence here in the social media space um, in a way that is organic, in a way that is genuine, in a way that is true and speaks to the needs of the regular, everyday Black person, right? Um, so that is why we try to share content here that comes from everyone. It's not just, it's not a celebrity page. <laughs> We do share things about celebrities, but overall, this is a grassroots page focused on the lives of everyday Black people doing excellent, wonderful things. So I want to say thank you uh, for being a follower of this uh, page in space. Now, I do notice, I have noticed that since we've gained a lot more followers over the last month, we've had people coming to this page who are not necessarily African-American or the descendants of the enslaved, and that's okay. We welcome everyone to learn from our content. We welcome conversation, but we what we don't welcome is foolishness. And so we're not doing foolishness on any day of the week. We're not doing it Monday through Friday, and we're not doing it on Saturday or Sunday either. All right, so this is a space where we uplift Black people. We don't tear black women down here. We don't tear black men down here. We don't believe in the mistreatment of black children. So if you want to know what this page is about, what the content is about, the best way to get an idea of that is to watch our videos, watch my reels, uh, watch our lives that we present on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time so you can hear my heart and know what it is that we want for this space. I want to hop right into a couple of topics. As I said, thank you all for um, following, for liking, for sharing. We've had several of our videos go viral within the last month, um, which tells me a lot about the kind of content that Black people want to see and hear. Oftentimes, <clears throat> we get told that the only thing that Black people will pay attention to is crime, <laughs> ratchetness and drama and wow yeah that's what we get told that's what we get sold as an idea about us as a people 
And you all are literally proving that to not be true. So I want to say again, how thankful I am that you are in this space, that you're liking, that you're sharing the content, that you are following, because you're making a statement by saying, this is what we want to see more of. We want to see positive, uplifting things about ourselves, about our culture, about our people from this social media space. This is super important um, because we know that all of these spaces run by algorithms. And so if the algorithm is on the positive, um, it will begin to shift to that. So it is very important um, for us to get the word out about this page and our mission and goal is to uplift, empower, and inspire. Uplift, empower, and inspire. Are there other things happening in the world? Yes. We've seen it. We see quite a bit of that. Um, are black people under attack in the United States? Yes, we see that. But are black people also marching on, doing our thing, being excellent, empowering ourselves, empowering our own communities, making history in spite of every other thing that has been thrown at us? Absolutely. That too is happening. And so we want to make sure that we get a complete picture of black life. Now, <clears throat> one of the hot topics that's going on right now is a quote unquote revival that is happening on a college campus. And some people are pushing back against this revival. Um, they are labeling it or hashtagging it the Asbury Revival. And the question came that um, the majority of this revival is centered around white people and it's centered around sort of music and singing. And the question was asked, you know, by definition, is this really a revival? We're talking about in the Christian sense, right? And I want to read you something that James Cone said, and I think it's really important, um, especially when we look at faith traditions and what has happened in history. He said, this means that if you're talking about a theology that um, includes Black people, because that's been one of the criticisms of this particular revival, is a lot of times media attention is only centered around Christian things when it's white people leading it or white people involved in it. So that has been some of the criticism. And the question came, if it is a revival, it is if it is a gospel that is that is largely about singing and not about reparative processes and not about um, facing America's moral dilemmas facing America's moral debt, then is it actually a revival? Which is a very good question. Uh, James Cone said it this way, and this is, this is James Cone on black theology and a religious authority. He says, black theology is not prepared to accept any doctrine of God, man, Christ, or scripture which contradicts the black demand for freedom now. 
It says, black people have come to know Christ precisely through oppression because he has made himself synonymous with black oppression. Therefore, to deny the reality of black oppression and to affirm some other reality is to deny Christ. Black theology must say, if the doctrine is compatible with or enhances the drive for black freedom, then it is the gospel of Christ. If the doctrine is against or even indifferent to the essence of blackness, then it is the work of antichrist. Black theology is not prepared to discuss the doctrine of God, man, Christ, church, Holy Spirit, the whole spectrum of Christian theology without making each doctrine an analysis of the emancipation of black people. It believes that in this time, in this moment and situation, all Christian doctrines must be interpreted in such a manner that they are unreservedly saying something to black people who are living under unbearable oppression. So the, so the question comes, if you are, if you are having a Christ led revival and people go to examine your revival and they see that it's largely non-inclusive, they go to examine your revival and this is what they see. And they don't see anyone speaking the message of Christ. And they don't see anyone calling our nation to repentance. And they don't see anyone calling our nation to repair the people that are unrepaired in this country. If they don't see anyone calling for doing justly, loving mercy, um, and walking humbly with God, if they don't see anyone calling for reparations for black Americans, but all they see is singing, then your revival comes into question. Is this an actual revival or is this a concert? Is this just an extended concert of lively singing and people who have, you know, continue to extend that lively singing for a couple of days and now you have media attention brought in to say that it is a revival. I tell you this much, I tell you, we are in 2023 and people are not fooled. <laughs> people are not deceived. Okay. You might be deceiving yourself, but people around you are not deceived as to what it is that is actually going on. So that is a controversy that is now kicking up in the Christian space. Let's get into let's get into HBCU icons. I'm going to try to pick someone that we don't often talk about. The book is called Historically Black American Icons Who Attended HBCUs. This is a new release book beautifully illustrated with lots of iconic figures. I would encourage you to get this for um, anyone, middle school level student, high school level student, college level student, even as an adult, it's a great resource to add to your library. 
Today we're reading about Bob Hayes first, who was an athlete who attended Florida A&M University. He lived from 1942 to 2002. There's only one athlete in sports history who has won both an Olympic gold medal and a Super Bowl ring, Bullet Bob Hayes. In fact, Hayes won two gold medals at the 1964 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, one in the 100-meter dash and another in the 4-by-100-meter relay. That same year, the Dallas Cowboys drafted him into the NFL. Seven years later, he helped the team win its first-ever Super Bowl victory. These would be extraordinary achievements for any athlete, but they are all that much more impressive when one considers Hayes' personal history. Bob Hayes was raised in a part of Jacksonville, Florida, colloquially known as the Bottom. It was comprised mostly of shotgun houses. There were no parks for children, and none of the streets were paved. Growing up, he and his friends devised their own forms of entertainment, and one of their go-to games was dirt road races. Even back then, Hayes always won. He didn't participate in his first organized sport until he was 11, when he played shortstop in center field in Little League Baseball at a stadium about four miles from his house. A year before he started, Hank Aaron had been assigned to the Jacksonville Braves, the first black person in history to play baseball in the South Atlantic League. The young Hayes visited Durkee Field as many times as he could to see the now integrated baseball team. Hank Aaron was all he could think about. By middle school, his interest in sports had expanded he decided to run track and in an extraordinary display of raw talent, entered a flurry of events over a two-week period, relays, dashes, the high jump, long jump, and the pole vault. He won them all. By high school, he'd added football to the list. As a junior, he stood five foot nine and weighed 140 pounds. No one took him seriously. A year later, he'd grown two inches and weighed 165 pounds, and he kept growing. People began paying attention. His senior year, he racked up five touchdowns in one game, 78 carries for 525 yards, and led the team in punt and kickoff returns, and led the team in scoring. Bob Hayes played both running back and defensive back and still punted 32 times during the season for a 36.2-yard average. When football season ended, he returned to baseball, where nothing in center field got past him. He caught every ball. Three colleges offered him basketball scholarships. Nine offered football scholarships. Two offered scholarships in both football and track. And a scout for a professional baseball team was aggressively recruiting him. Florida A&M offered only a partial scholarship for football, but he accepted it. He recounts his in his autobiography that every black high school football player in the country wanted to play for Florida A&M at the time because it had a record of winning and winning big. To Hayes, FAMU was a no-brainer. What he found at FAMU was not only an A-rate football, football program, but a coaching staff that was eager to support its athletes. At Florida A&M, he says, I was surrounded by love. When he and his teammates needed a few extra dollars, employees of the Atlantic Depart Athletic Department gave them money out of their own pockets. When Hayes was charged with robbing another student, his head coach pleaded with the judge, promising him that he would personally see to it that Hayes became someone who would make them all proud. 
Thanks to his coach, Hayes got off with that just probation. The support he had at FAMU carried him to the 1964 Summer Olympics when he was just 21 years old. In the 100-meter dash, Bob Hayes tied the current world record of 10.06 seconds, winning his first gold medal, all while running in borrowed spikes. He followed up with another goal in the 4x100-meter relay, establishing a new world record of 39.06 seconds. His relay leg hand time between 8.5 and 8.9 seconds was clocked as the fastest in history at the time. That same year, the Dallas Cowboys drafted him into the NFL. For two consecutive seasons, he held and led the NFL in receiving touchdowns. Four years later, he was leading the NFL in punt returns, but it's his 1971 season that's talked about most often. During this year, Hayes won a Super Bowl ring. In 2009, Hayes was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He was the second Olympic gold medalist to be honored with such an achievement and remains the only Olympian who also has a Super Bowl victory. That is an icon that attended an HBCU. Let's move to the next section of this book entitled The Hip Hop Generation, College Years, 1980 to 1999. From the crack epidemic to the AIDS crisis, students of this era faced a slew of socioeconomic ills and stereotypes. I would be considered a part of the hip hop generation. I uh, attended college from 1995 to 2000. If politicians weren't accusing the men of being super predators at this time, then they were accusing the women of being welfare queens. Brown versus Board of Education had finally grown legs and the results weren't always in the favor of predominantly black institutions. Affirmative action was booming, which meant many smart black students were committing to Ivy League institutions at this time, not HBCUs. During this time, Division I colleges, historically white institutions that maintain some of the country's largest athletic budgets, they began aggressively recruiting black student athletes. It seemed HBCU enrollment was taking hits from all sides. The shifts weren't all negative. Administrators of the prior era had buckled and implemented black studies programs, and as a result, Pride for HBCUs was spreading beyond the campus. In the year 1991, we saw the creation of African American College Alliance clothing brand. Actors and musicians from Will Smith to Biggie Smalls were spotted in HBCU paraphernalia. The TV show A Different World was set in a fictitious HBCU campus, Hillman College, bringing the HBCU experience into millions of American households during this time. And then there were those unforgettable, triple-X-rated, student-led spring break events like Freak Nick and Black College Reunion, neither one of which I went to. <laughs> there was too much conversation about what could happen to you at Freak Nick and what could happen to your, um, let's just say, what could happen to your academic future if you was caught on film doing any of the stuff that people were doing at Freak Nick. So I didn't go. This provided students with the ultimate forms of escapism. 
Students of this era said to heck with stereotypes and carved out spaces for themselves and for each other. They regretted neither their actions nor the country's blowbacks. These were their college years. Now, that's definitely a generalization. I wouldn't say nobody regretted what they did during that era, but um, yeah. So let's take a look at an HBCU icon who graduated during this time. Taraji P. Henson. Let's talk a little bit about Taraji's rise from the HBCU. We know that Taraji P. Henson is an actress. She attended North Carolina A&T State University and Howard University. Taraji P. Henson is one of America's most acclaimed contemporary actresses. To date, she's earned an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress, a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Television Series Drama, and the NAACP's 2015 Entertainer of the Year Award. And who can forget her performance as Yvette in John Singleton's now classic coming-of-age film, Baby Boy. Henson's range as a performer is undeniable, and she's quick to give credit to Howard University's Department of Theater Arts, but few know that Howard was not her first choice. Born and raised in Washington, D.C., Henson began taking acting classes as an elementary school student at the Kennedy Center. By the middle school time, she was entering competitions. Her performance as one of the witches in Shakespeare's Macbeth won her an award at a local Shakespeare festival. Good morning to those of you coming in. But competition in D.C. was stiff. When she auditioned for a coveted spot at the Duke Ellington School of Arts, she wasn't accepted. The rejection devastated her and she gave up on acting. Determined to establish a career in a field more reliable than performing arts, she graduated high school and enrolled at North Carolina A&T to study electrical engineering. There were two problems with this decision. The first was that she could not pass pre-calculus. The second was that she couldn't ignore her passion for acting. She dropped out of North Carolina A&T and returned to DC, determined to get into Howard's drama department. A partial scholarship at North Carolina A&T defrayed much of the cost to attend. At Howard, Henson had to pay for it all on her own. She held down a desk job at the Pentagon, opened a salon in her basement apartment, and worked as a singing waitress on a dinner barge that floated down the Potomac River. Um, I do believe, what is that dinner barge called? Gosh. It's still there. And a lot of people talk about how Taraji used to sing on this um cruise ship gosh why i can't think of it right now it'll come back to me but it's a it's a um cruise i think it's spirit of washington or something like that but it's a cruise on the potomac river it's like a dinner cruise and she would sing um on that boat at howard henson was taught by professors who believed it wasn't enough to just show up students had to work hard and care about the art form if you didn't she recounts in her autobiography, they would put your blank out in the beat word. During her first year, Professor Mike Malone chose Dream Girls as the annual student production. Henson felt too green to audition for a role, but signed up to help with the props. 
As prop mistress, she made herself readily available, and when a minor role in Dreamgirls opened up, she auditioned for it and got the part. From then on, Henson's time at Howard was an uninterrupted series of standing ovations. Then she crossed paths with Professor Vera Katz. During class, Professor Katz would interrupt Henson's monologues to admonish her for using tricks on the audience. She saw in Henson a performer capable of more than just taking up space on stage and challenged her to be a thinking actress, someone who captured the full complexity of her characters. A thinking actress Henson has become. Since graduating Howard, she's earned some of the most prestigious awards and nominations in Hollywood. In 2005, as a cast member of the independent film Hustle and Flow, she provided vocals for Three Six Mafia's It's Hard Out There for a Pimp which went on to win an Academy Award for Best Original Song. Her 2008 performance in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button earned her an Academy Award nominee for Best Supporting Actress, and her role as Cookie Lion in the musical drama Empire earned her a Golden Globe for Best Actress in the television series Drama, as well as the 2015 Entertainer of the Year Award from the NAACP. Her star is still rising. This is what Taraji had to say about her time at Howard. Professors at Howard didn't care if you were cute, if you had long hair, pretty skin, if you were mixed and lighter than a paper bag, if you came from a family that could afford a maid and a chef, or from where ramen noodles were considered fine cuisine. The only thing that mattered was your answer to these questions. Can you fill this space with the truth of this character? Can you build a beautiful set? Can you style the most incredible hair to look exactly like it would have in this or that era? Can you get these props organized and on the stage when they need to be there? Shout out to Howard University's drama department for raising up quality people in the entertainment sector. All right, I've got one more book that we're gonna take a look at, and then I will open the floor up for some discussion. We're looking at the book entitled, Isn't Her Grace Amazing? The Women Who Changed Gospel Music. I wanna say, and I, and I have kind of been looking, this is pretty much one of the first books I have seen of its kind like this that um, focuses on solely black women of the gospel genre. And I wanna go over the sections that it contains before we get into the singer that we're talking about today. It has queen mothers like Mahalia Jackson, Inez Andrews, Albertina Walker, sisters in song, the Davis sisters, the Clark sisters, Clara Ward and the Ward singers, the Drinkert sisters, Architects of the Melody, Dorothy Love Coates, Dorothy Norwood, uh, Pastor Shirley Caesar are some of those that are located in here, and Crossover Queens. Yesterday, we talked about Sister Rosetta Tharp on our IG, which is Daring Dialogue, so if you want to take a look at that, you can go back to um, IG for that. And another section entitled, And She Still Shouts, with people like Dottie Peoples, Tremaine Hopkins, Kim Burrell, Yolanda Adams, Tamala Mann. So this is a pretty 
extensive book in terms of if you want something for your own collection, if you want something that catalogs women in gospel music, this is an excellent resource to have. Today, we are going to be talking about the crossover queen, Aretha Franklin herself. The picture I'm getting ready to show you is this is Aretha Franklin singing with B.B. Winans performing during the 50th Annual Grammy Awards in 2008 at the Staples Center in California. There they are. And let's hop into it. Aretha was born March 25th, 1942. She transitioned from this plane August 16th, 2018. Her hometown was Detroit, Michigan. Her notable gospel hits were Amazing Grace, You've Got a Friend, and Climbing Higher Mountains. Her crossover hits were Respect, Say a Little Prayer, and You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Her awards and accolades, some of them, 26 Grammy nominations, 18 Grammy Awards. In 1987, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In 1994, she received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. In 1994, she also received the Kennedy Center Honors. In 2005, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 2012, she was inducted into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. And in 2019, she was given a Pulitzer Prize. Posthumously, this is Aretha in 1962 at a recording studio. The young and pensive and thoughtful Aretha. I got a chance to see both films on her. Very, very, very intense life. When Aretha Franklin stepped onto the pulpit of the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in 1972, resplendent in a large green caftan, perfectly coiffed afro and turquoise eyeshadow to match, she was a woman in full control of her artistic expression. By the early 1970s, she could have been anywhere in the world. Throughout the 1960s, she dominated the R&B charts with number one hits like Respect, Chain of Fools, and Think. But during two steamy nights in a Los Angeles church, Aretha was back to the core of her gospel roots, recording new renditions of gospel classics such as Holy Holy, How I Got Over, and of course, Amazing Grace, that took the audience from tearful reverence to a Holy Ghost frenzy. It didn't matter how far Aretha went into the world, she was always Reverend C.L. Franklin's daughter, and her heart was always with the church, shared George Faison, legendary choreographer and frequent collaborator with the Queen of Soul throughout her career. Under the guidance of her mentor, the Reverend James Cleveland, and the soulful singing of the Southern California Community Choir, the recording sessions from those two electric evenings were the foundation of her album, Amazing Grace, which would go on to become the best-selling gospel album of all time. Aretha was a sonic prophet, said Dr. Melanie Hill. Her voice reaches generations back into slavery. You can hear the song of the enslaved woman as she's toiling in the field. At that moment when she is performing at the White House in 2015, you can hear the diasporic transatlantic sound in Aretha's voice. I believe that is why people loved her 
all of those years. And let me say something about that transatlantic sound that people love to imitate. They love to imitate the sound, but they don't want the sorrow behind the sound. It's the sorrow that translates through that people call soul. And you can't get that from auto-tune. And no matter how many schools you go to for vocal training, you can't get that from the school. That comes from your collective embodiment of your DNA from your ancestral lineage. And anyone else who's telling you otherwise is lying to you. Often duplicated, often imitated, but it's still not the original. Many black performers of her era were underpaid or even cheated during recording sessions and live performances. So the queen of soul was adamant about being paid in cash and ensuring that every person from her assistant to the band leader was paid accordingly at the end of the night. She did not want to be stiffed and she did not want her people to be stiffed. There are many things that I will miss about Aretha, but one of the things I will miss the most is that she paid in cash, joked Faison. The queen was serious about her business and I appreciated that she ensured that everyone was paid and treated fairly. Over the next 40 years, Aretha would fulfill her title as the Queen of Soul with more than 26 Grammy nominations and 18 Grammy Awards under her belt. She also received, as we know, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the Kennedy Center Honors, and numerous honorary doctorate degrees. But no matter how far Aretha's amazing voice took her, her gospel foundation was never far from her heart. Even when she was not officially singing gospel, she was always doing God's work. Aretha followed in Mahalia's footsteps and she was always a pure lady. Let me show you some images as we continue to read here. This is her singing with her sisters, Irma and Carolyn Franklin and gospel legend Mavis Staples on the 1987 recording, One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism. All right, another image we have here. This is America's Reunion on the Mall. This was a two-day multi-stage festival as a part of the 1993 presidential inauguration celebration. Aretha Franklin belted out her signature vocal respect during the concert at the Lincoln Memorial. This, ladies and gentlemen, is style. <laughs> Style, style, style. One last image before we continue. This is Aretha in 2017 during the Tribeca Film Festival opening gala. Premiere of Clive Davis, the soundtrack of our lives. She is giving another performance here. As I said, this is a fantastic work that you want to add to your collection. Let's continue. Aretha never let us forget that it was God's amazing grace that brought her into our hearts and it was her grace 
that led her home. She was invited to sing the Star Spangled Banner for former President Barack Obama's first presidential inauguration in 2009, and she was a frequent musical guest for the Obama White House. In 2015, the Queen of Soul arrived on the stage of the Kennedy Center for one of her last five live performances in a floor-length cream gown and an elegant clutch in her hand. She nodded to the pianist to begin with the opening chords of Amazing Grace. What came out of her mouth for the next four and a half minutes can only be described as spellbinding. When the camera panned to former President Barack Obama, you could see him wiping away tears. When the world sent the Queen of Soul home to be with the Lord in the summer of 2018, it was nearly a 10-hour homegoing service that included legendary singers, preachers, and speakers who celebrated Aretha's nearly 60 years of performance. Aretha never let us forget that it was God's amazing grace that brought her into our hearts, and it was His grace that led her home. This is her singing at the American Portrait Gala in November 15, 2015. And on the other page, she is with two people that we might call protégés, Jennifer Hudson and Janelle Monae in 2014, and also an image of her singing in 1968. If you've ever heard Jennifer Hudson talk about uh, her relationship with the Queen of Soul, she often talks about how she was given permission to um, portray her and that she worked closely alongside Aretha to make sure that that portrayal of herself was accurate. Again, there's a series, these are a series of beautiful photographs of Aretha Franklin. Here she is with Whoopi Goldberg. Here she is with Lauren Hill. On the other side, here she is at the opening of the monument and greeting President Obama and Lady Michelle Obama, former president, excuse me. Also, she's photographed here with, let's see, Al Green, Smokey Robinson, Alicia Keys, Muhammad Ali, and LL Cool J. And I will hold those up for those of you who would like to pause and screenshot. And... Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes my reading for today. Again, I want to thank you for your time and attention for sharing in Black Table Talk with me. Next Tuesday at 11 a.m., we are going to have a live um, author guest on, Dr. Diane M. Stewart. She is a professor at Emory University, and she's written a fascinating yet timely work entitled Black Women, Black Love. And we're going to be hearing from her on next Tuesday. Um, we'll be in conversation together. If you would like to join me in conversation as we take the next 20 minutes just to hear from you, um, your thoughts on what is happening in our current state of Black affairs, or if you would like to respond to 
any of the readings from today, feel free to click on that two-person icon and I will bring you on. If you're interested in joining the chat today or you can type me in the comments and we'll see if we can bring you on. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Okay. Well, frankly, I would like to touch on everything you spoke on today. I think we can do this really, really quick. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Um, people not being fooled and not being deceived, that is actually the definition of being woke. Yeah, so so let our let those who are listening in let them know what you're referencing to. What part of our conversation are you talking about right now? Okay, this this was in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she, when she, uh, when we would, when she was actually discussing uh, things that you know things of our history and actually things actually goes into things that are happening right now, to where you know they're telling you one thing and what they're telling you is not true. They're deceiving people. And I'm going to call out the party. Okay? The Republican Party. They're great at this. Misdirection, deception, everything. They're the ones that took the word woke and turned it into something that is actually not. You're right. That means that I can see, I know what's going on, you can't fool me. Mm-hmm. But now they actually added some truth to it, too, because they're saying they're calling it woke. Right. That just means that you can't fool me. I know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I want everybody to be equal. I want to do away with injustices mm-hmm. and all these things. But they don't. This is why they're trying to. This is why Ron DeSantis has made being woke a crime. Yeah, like literally before our eyes, he is weaponizing a word and making it illegal to have a certain level of awareness. And Uh I'm going to say it again until people get it. This man's family came to America in the 1900s. The early 1900s from Italy. I just want to tell people you might want to do a little bit of digging into his background because he is literally walking through the playbook of fascism. And we know Uh that historically Italy dealt with a fascist leader by the name of Mussolini. So a lot of what I see him doing. I see him as Mussolini Jr. And I'm just like, I don't understand why people are not directly calling this what it is that's happening in the state of Florida and now being, you know, they're trying to push it into other states. We know what's happening in, um, where is that, Mississippi, where they have pretty much taken away the political power of uh, the Democratic Party. Now I'm not so I'm not keen on the Democratic Party either. But you have Democrats and Republicans and 
Mississippi's the way their laws are now structured, they have taken all of the voting power and the voice from the democratic side of the of the party down in Mississippi. This should concern a lot of people, especially since and they're specifically doing this within Jackson. Um, especially since Jackson is primarily black. These, the citizens there, their voting rights are being stripped. They're literally trying to enact a separate court in Jackson, Mississippi. They're trying to have two justices systems in Jackson, Mississippi. And why hasn't there been federal intervention to stop this from happening? See, I don't need a State of the Union speech as much as we need federal immediate intervention and action into people that are trying to push Jim Crow policies across states. Uh-huh. Because that's literally what had to happen in the past. They had to send in federal officials, uh-huh. military, National uh-huh. Guard, to stop uh-huh. people in their states from infringing upon the civil rights of the citizens there. This is not rocket science. And my and my uh-huh. issue and my issue with the Democratic Party has always been y'all are slow to move on everything that you need to be moving on in regards to black people, but yet you want black people's love and loyalty and blood, sweat, and tears when it comes to a poll. But then when they put you in office, your hind tail is moving at snail's pace when it comes to the needs of the people who help to put you in office. Uh-huh. And now in Mississippi, you have no power within the representation in Jackson for the people that put you in office. This is a whole problem. This is a whole entire problem. And so when someone says, oh, where are you traveling for? Listen, as my friend and writer, Andre Henry says all the time, he says, America, well, he says the world is Stone Mountain. I'm like, yeah, that's about right. That's about right. We still need a green book in America. There are still places in America that you're not going to have, um, you're not going to find me traveling to right now. Uh-huh. Because there's no protection under the law. And we see there's not. Listen, I, I, um, only that and not only that we don't have more rights we've never we've never asked for more rights we've asked for equal rights and that's what and that's what i said i said no we're supposed to have equal rights and we got equal rights of 
maybe on paper, but not in actuality. And the reality is, beyond civil rights, we should be operating in human rights. Because uh -huh. that's what's happening right now. This country is violating the human rights of black people, yeah. black citizens as a whole. Which is uh -huh. why, um, who is that? Attorney Crump and the family of Tyree Nichols is trying to take his case to the UN. Uh -huh. Because this has got to stop at a higher level than the American court system. You gotta you have to take this to the the world council to deal with what's happening in America. But only but again the problem with that is America funds most of the UN. So there the likelihood that they would um convict their funders is very slim. Even though they know that there are there are human uh, rights violations and injustices and abuses going on, the reality is the United States funds many of the countries in the UN. Uh -huh. So thinking that they are going to look at what America is doing and yeah, they condemned it. They've condemned it several times. They've been condemning yeah. stuff since the 1960s. Doesn't make doesn't walk us any closer to having this addressed. So what happens when human beings don't address their injustices towards one another? What happens? What divine intervention has to happen? Because clearly it is not going to be human intervention that does right, right. by us. Right. Not, nothing, nothing positive is going to happen. Not for, not for them. Because mm -hmm. as you said, and I've explained this to many people, Americans have been given time and time again to repent. And they refuse to do it. And I told them, at this point, God is going to move in. And when he moves in, y'all ain't going to like it. He's been giving you a chance to do it on your own. Should keep with you. What's in, as, as I text to you, the guy, uh, with the Tyree uh, Knuckles thing, when I was watching that video where you had these parents of people that cops killed, they were all making a statement, and I heard God clearly, this is the last cry. That doesn't mean that he's the last one that's going to be murdered. That means that, okay, I've given y'all the chance. You don't want it. So now I'm going to intervene. Um, uh, Sasal, I hope I'm saying that right. Sasal Lee says, apply pressure after as much as during election time. Votes required for human rights are equally important to reflect on injustice as well as justice. Yes, I sincerely believe that. Apply pressure. Uh, and not just apply pressure on white politicians. Apply pressure on the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh -huh. Apply pressure on people who need to raise up younger people. 
and put them in office because you're getting a little too old to fight. Uh-huh. You're tired. We can tell. I mean, we can tell by what's not getting done that a lot of you all are tired. And we get it. Uh-huh. So take on that emeritus role. Take on that advisory role. But please look for your replacement. Because we need people that are young enough and strong enough and knowledgeable enough to stay in the fight. Yep. And, and I'm, I'm going to say this. Farrakhan uh, has been calling for something here lately. He wants it done this year. And Martin Luther King had called The boycott Christmas. Yeah, I've heard about that. About going from like, what, November to February or something? Actually, from November to after January 1st. So, matter of fact, the day from Thanksgiving, don't even do Black Friday. Shut it down. If you went, if you went from there to January 2nd mm-hmm. or 3rd or anywhere in there, do you know the damage that would do this country financially? Mm-hmm. Uh, us being the largest consumer in this country. Now I would I would I would amend that to say pair your pair your shopping down to black retailers. I do that anyway. Uh-huh. I do that just on a daily basis. I try to whatever I'm buying, I try to find a black retailer for it first. So I've uh-huh. been I've been on that boycott for about a decade now. But I know a lot of people are like I must have this, I must have that. But if you pared all of your resources down to black farmers, black-owned grocery stores, black-owned clothing retailers, um, you know, and focusing on your basic necessities, focusing on I'm only purchasing my basic necessities, and then if I'm getting anything outside of my basic necessities, I'm going to find a black retailer. And we have enough sites where we can find Black-owned goods and services. Uh-huh. You got webuyblack.com that's got a whole directory. There are some other sites out here that have full directories of products from A to Z that you can purchase from Black people. Here's another thing you can be doing between November and you know January 2nd. Meeting with your family making sure people have things like life insurance, health insurance, creating a living trust for your family. That's what you can be doing with your money. You can be establishing a living trust and start using the tax code like they do, handing down your money from family member to family member (laughs) tax-free. They already do that. But of course, we know that the tax law would change once enough black people were doing that, obviously. Um, this has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host today, Shantae Charles. I want to thank you for your time and attention. I look forward to our author talk next week with author Diane M. Stewart talking about the book and in conversation with her on black women and black love. Take care. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so be light, be well, and be light.